I write a update that goes to every colleague in the organization every single Friday. It's written by me on a Friday morning over my first cup of coffee of the day. And it's a very frank, transparent view of what I've been doing for the week. And the reason it's well read is that it's a completely frank assessment of what's been going on. It is a window on my world of being a chief executive here and the mistakes I've made, the difficulties I'm encountering and the fact that I've not felt great on whatever week. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist, the podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. My guest today is Tom Willis. He's the Chief Executive of Shore & Port. Tom, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Um, maybe just as a way to get us started, you could share a little bit about both your own background, but about Shore and Port. Thank you, Belden, and I'm delighted to be joining you. Having spent uh, a career in leadership, I worked out at a very young age that I enjoyed working with teams of people. That took me to joining Royal Mail's graduate program at 23. I worked with them for about 14 years. When I left there, I was responsible for the Postal Service in Southeast England, and that was about 15,000 people, a really exciting role in a wonderful organization. I was tempted by the bright lights of Heathrow Airport at that stage. It was around 2012. Heathrow was the host airport for the London Olympics, and I felt it was an opportunity to play my part in that event and join the team at Heathrow. I spent just short of nine years at the airport, learned a great deal, a far more commercial organization than maybe Royal Mail was um, during my time there. And then I got to a stage where I really wanted my own leadership challenge and wanted to learn about being a chief executive. So began a conversation with the board here at Shore and Port and started here as a chief exec in 2019. So I've been here four and a bit years. So that's sort of my career in a paragraph in terms of the port and my current role, it is an organization which was founded in 1760 by a group of people in a local pub, which is where many, many good ideas are formed in my experience. Uh, a group of local folks got together and decided to do something to improve ship access into the local area and started to construct a harbor. And so 260 odd years later, it is my responsibility to lead the team here to work with the community in continuing to shape and develop the port. What is unique about the organization and makes it a very engaging and inspiring place to work is since 1760, it's operated as a trust port, which is a very interesting business model. We're fiercely competitive. We compete with other ports. We compete with other businesses within the area. The key difference is all of our profits are reinvested to improve the port for everybody, which remains our purpose to this day. So no shareholders, there's nothing that leaves the financial ecosystem. Every penny that we earn each year, we reinvest in increasing our impact, good quality local jobs, becoming more sustainable, and being a good asset for the local community. So that trust port model, is that unique to Shoreham Port or are there other trust ports? 
There are around 100 in the UK. Really? It could be a subject for another whole podcast. (laughs) I have some theories, having worked in one for four years and being so impressed with the model. I have some theories why it has a bit of a marketing crisis in that many people have not heard of a trust port. I hadn't heard of one before I began the conversation here with the board. And many of the people that are joining our expanding team sort of say, I'd never really knew what a trust port was until I thought about working for one. And there are some reasons for that. And there are some reasons why trust ports sort of keep themselves a bit quiet in terms of talking about that model or talking about how that works. And I, and I think you know, being very open, Belden, with you and your listeners, you know, I think some of that is a sort of fear of being privatized, possibly, which has been suggested not recently, but in the not too distant past. So I certainly think it's an opportunity. And I certainly think it's a model that works very well, particularly when we think about coming out of the pandemic, building back in a stronger way about disparity within this country and about uh, levelling up societal differences. I think it's a really powerful way of running an organisation. It might be a, a little bit of a divergence, but is there a reason why ports seem to be a, a particularly useful place for this model? Or is it something that actually could expand to lots of things that weren't ports? I don't know quite what they'd be, trust neighborhoods or... I think ports <laughs> lean towards that model because they are big, heavy assets. And you know, ports take a huge amount of capital to run. You know, We spend upwards of you know, three, four million pounds just maintaining the asset because you have a sea that beats against uh, sea walls. We have lock gates that need replacing. So that model is suited to the people who use it all contributing. And, and users could be, you know, birthing your vessel, discharging your vessel, parking a HGV. You know, th- there are multiple, multiple different users within the ecosystem. And using the surpluses that generates to maintain the asset does work for that model. But then in terms of society, traditionally port towns were there for local people and you know traditionally many many years ago you know a ship would come in and the locals would stop what they were doing and come and help with the ship and that's how the economy worked particularly within port-based localities and i think what's very interesting to this day we have direct employment here of about 200 people Of my 200 people, I only employ two people that don't live within a local postcode. Just seeing that on a map really shocked me just how local an asset this is. That's fascinating. Wouldn't imagine you have data for all the other 99 or 100, how many there are trust ports. But just from what you know, does it seem likely that that employment model is also the case in others? Absolutely. Yes. There's a lot of work being done in the country about regenerating coastal communities. Coastal communities that have ports are in completely different places. And and ports can be, when they're performing very well, huge economic lungs for regions in terms of jobs, in terms of moving goods and freight, in terms of trade. They're really strong assets within local areas with the shift to working flexibly, working from home, Again, what's very interesting in maritime employment is lots and lots of roles are not really suitable for that. I mean, I have lots of team members who, you know, will will drive HGVs, who will work on vessels. You know, we we run um, a fleet of vessels that will do various activities around the port. 
And none of those roles are things that can be done at home. They're traditionally done by local people who will still attend, you know, often very early in the morning and attend a shift for you know, eight, nine hours and then go home again. So if I've got it right, um, you said you're sort of a not very big economically, but how big is that? So we will do, uh, what, 20 million revenue this year in terms of direct revenue for the ports. We're the third largest fishing port in England. And, you know, we'll land about 18 million of catch a year in terms of market value that will go to restaurants, that will go to markets in London, that will travel across the country in terms of fresh fish. So, again, in terms of economic impact, it would obviously be far greater than that. But size of my own business and the piece I run, uh, you know, directly, the direct port income will be about 20 million this year. Where does the income come from? You know, who are your customers? Who pays you? We have a really complex web of who the customers are. So if I just sort of run down that, um, we have around 170 small business tenants. So these are uh, commercial businesses that are operated from across the ports of state. We have a retail business that is offering advice products to maintain leisure vessels. We have a hospitality business within the center of the port that offers great food cooked and prepared from the local area. Then on the water aspect, we have a thriving leisure marina. So this will be a place that people can berth vessels that they use for leisure. That's pretty much full. We will also have visiting leisure vessels that will come and stay with us from France, from areas of Europe, two, three nights at a time. And that literally works like sort of car parking. You know, someone will come in, berth a vessel, stay for three nights and then move on. That's the leisure business. I've talked already about fishing in terms of visiting vessels and home-based vessels. Then I think the really big element is commercial cargo. So we will import steel, aggregate, grain, timber, all linked to construction. So that's a pretty tough time at the moment. On a good year, we'll do 2 million tonnes of commercial cargo, all shipped from Europe. And again, it's interesting, as a small port, we're not in the container superhighway of ports. So all of our commodities will come on slightly smaller vessels. Around 2 million tonnes of that cargo is brought in, is then unloaded by my team uh, using cranes, using forklift trucks, and then the customer will hold the cargo with us in storage, waiting until their construction project is ready. And then we will deliver it on a HGV to their point of construction. So you've got a kind of complex mix of activities there. Yeah, it's very much an ecosystem and it's very much like a town. There are many ports in the country that you can choose to berth at. And so we want to be a place that people choose to visit. They can choose to process their cargo through or they choose to locate their business within. So it's about understanding the complementary factors of the ecosystem and nurturing and investing in building that ecosystem, which when you've got, you know, inbuilt instability within the economy, which is something all business leaders are, are wrestling with on a daily basis you know, at the moment, it's trying to build a strong port economy, even though the rest of it is going through some really difficult times. Yeah. Yeah. You said that the trust port was set up with a purpose quite some number of years ago. To what extent do you sort of have to revisit that purpose or is it, that's it, it's obvious what it is, there's no questions about it, it's all about how? I think we have to constantly revisit it and constantly remind ourselves of what we're here to do. And 
One of the things the team have achieved in the last sort of three or four years is getting greater clarity around that purpose, which is you know, very clear, improving our port for everyone. And again, you know, every word in that very small sentence has been you know, carefully thought over. I think language drives culture and you listen to how people talk about things. And so we thought long and hard about the word our within that sentence improving our port. And what's interesting is our is because it is owned by the community. It's not owned by any individual. It's not the port. It's our port because it's everybody's who works here. It's everybody who interacts with it. And it's the people within the local communities that we operate within. Trust ports talk about, you know, being there for their stakeholders or there for their port users. We want to be very clear that we're here for everyone, which again is almost an impossible concept because we can't do everything. Of course, we have to make trade-offs like any organization. We can't give every customer what they want because most customers want better service for lower costs. But the aspiration is to continue to improve our port for everyone. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there was some process you went through. It may have been over a few years or it may have happened fairly quickly and it may have involved a small number of people or a large number of people. But what was the process? How did you go about revisiting that set of language and changing it or deciding to keep it? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a paper by two people called Collis and Ruckstad that's titled, Can You Say What Your Strategy Is? And this is a paper that I have used probably once every two years for the last 20 years. And every time I'm with a group of people thinking about strategy, I ask them and invite everybody to read this 10 pages first. The key to a high-performing organization is that everybody in the organization has a decent handle, can understand the strategy and understand where an organization is going. Many organizations have extremely complicated strategies. They are 60 pages long and they're sat in the offices of the executive team. And you tap on the shoulder of someone in the organization who's actually talking to customers, actually interacting with other colleagues on a day-to-day -day basis. And the gap between their thinking and the 60-page document is huge. So how we approach this is I convinced our board and work very closely with our board that we need a really simple plan. That should be one page long. It's linked to our purpose, which is, as I've said, is improving our port for everyone. And the plan covers eight bullet points. We run an annual colleague survey. Again, language. I never refer to people I work with as staff. Staff always reminds me of something it's sort of very English. It's a bit like Downton Abbey. You sort of have the staff downstairs doing the cooking, the other folks upstairs. You know, here we talk about everyone being a colleague because everybody is on that equal footing, whether you are a director of the organization or a HTV driver. And so we run an annual colleague survey and we ask people, how well do you understand the plan? We've just had the results back and we're north of 80% of people voluntarily saying they understand the plan. Part of that is yeah, we're way smaller than some of the other organizations, but we're growing rapidly. And what I'm trying to do is ensure the ingredients are there. So as we grow, we continue with 80, 90% of people understanding the strategy and understanding where they fit and understanding how that fits together. So I, I kind of get what you're aiming for. 
kind of the result of whatever work you're doing around creating the strategy or updating it, trying to make sure everybody understands it. But how do you get to the eight bullet points? How do you get to the one page? We would typically have a an away day with the senior executives and the board. We would be reviewing the year's performance, what's gone well, what hasn't. We would be reviewing the market factors, the environment we're working in, the societal factors to sort of create the backdrop. From that day, we would be hoping to produce, and again, very action-focused, a sort of first cut of words, a first cut of what they look like. And I write a update that goes to every colleague in the organization every single Friday. It's written by me on a Friday morning over my first cup of coffee of the day. And it's a very frank, transparent view of what I've been doing for the week. And the reason it's well-read is that it's a completely frank assessment of what's been going on. It is a window on my world of being a chief executive here and the mistakes I've made, the difficulties I'm encountering, and the fact that I've not felt great on whatever week. And then I would use that channel to say, right, hey, everybody, we've had an away day with the board on Wednesday, and here's the first cut. Either drop me a note with what you think, or grab me next week in the corridor, you know, and tell me what you think. And again, a reflection on an engaged organization is I get lots and lots of feedback. People saying, you know, I don't get 0.6. I don't like the language in 0.3. Where is this bit of work gone that we were talking about before? And that, that's no longer here. So you get all that feedback. You then build that in, engage with people. You then, through a process of going around that loop, come up with a more matured version. I'm then back to the board to say, right, folks, this is what the organization has developed and has come up with. And this is what I think we should do. And then you're back around again, sort of saying, right, everybody, this is the plan for the next year and beyond. That process of building input, building engagement is why when we run a survey saying who understands the plan, I'm getting 80, 90% offer to support that because they say, oh, yeah, you know, you wrote to me about that at the end of last year and I didn't like that wording. And so you've changed it. So it is a way of building that plan with everyone engaged. And if I was trying to do that with a 30 page document, people just aren't going to read it. Mm, mm. there's sort of two things i want to pursue one is how does that then feed into what happens during the year does it feed into people's performance evaluation compensation you know any of that stuff different organizations do that differently and then the other one is it sounded like that's almost like an action plan for the next year how do you deal with longer term multi-year things in that sort of a framework great questions belden so the first point in year we have the plan integrated into our business processes. So when we are presenting an investment paper to the board, for example, we would be specifically saying this is linked to 0.4.6. So that, and even on our sort of template board papers, our executives would have to delete, would have to sort of put a circle around, you know, this is where it fits in the plan. So that the board can then really easily see, oh yeah, We said we're going to do this in point four, and this is part of it coming to life. And then equally, in one of my weekly updates mid-year, I would normally say, right, folks, here's a sort of red, amber, green 
on how I think we're doing against each of the eight points. And it always feels a little bit like marking my own homework. And I'm always deliberately quite challenging. There's probably more reds and ambers on there than greens. And usually the feedback I get from colleagues on that is, oh, Tom, you're being very harsh on everybody. I think you could give us a green on point six when you got us as an amber. But that's a way of just keeping the dialogue live and a point of discussion. A lot of these are, you know, ambitious goals that aren't tick, done, finished. And then you know, to answer your second point, how this then sort of takes to a longer term, yeah, this is a, a sort of flowing river, I would describe it. And the organization ultimately is, is performing quite well. We are hitting a number of our objectives. And so what it is, is a sort of process of refinement each year. We don't sort of rip the eight points up and start again. It's changing the language in point two, the background in point four, to continually shape it. So it is a remodeling each year of the tone of the emphasis, as opposed to a, we're going to completely start again, do a sort of very sharp right turn because this has failed. So you, you, know, you could look at the plans over the last four years. They're all different, but there's a common thread. I mean, the ultimate common thread is that we're all here to improve our port for everybody every day, every week. You know, one of the things that strikes me is for a fairly small organization, you've got a lot of things going on. You've got, you know, different lines of business. You've got different customer types. It sounds to me like this very simple strategy helps everybody understand what the whole's trying to do. So it feels to me like it ought to counteract some of the silo mentality that a lot of organizations complain about. Am I right or am I sort of overly optimistic. <laughs> yeah, that's a good observation. We do suffer from silos. And you're absolutely right. We are small, but incredibly complex. We don't just do one thing. And we will have customers, you know, someone that spends £400 a year with us to birth a vessel whose family have birthed the same boat here for 65 years. We've got that family. And then we've also got multinational concrete production companies who have a depot with us that will operate in you know, 25 countries who are also a customer. And you've got to be providing a relationship with both that is meeting expectations. So that, again, is a very interesting dynamic. Alongside the strategy, we have a set of values that the team, which is very much around you know, how we like to do business and how we like to be. We've started that journey three years ago. We developed our values by listening very thoroughly to everybody and what they wanted them to be. Our values are very unique. They are drawn with quite individual cartoons that, again, we got someone locally to do for us. They were signed off by the team and they used people's language. So an example, we met with our teams and said, you know, what's it like working here? And they said, there's a lot of good eggs in this port. So we said, look, good eggs needs to be a value. And we now have our recruitment processes built around finding good eggs. And it's our first value. And that's language that people around here use a lot. There isn't another organization that I think has got good eggs as a value. And that, again, makes us quite unique. It's very memorable. And we were delighted that we won the CIPD National Awards in 2021 for our values-based transformation here, which again, for a small organization, a bit of recognition like that, we're pleased with it. You should be. Um, shifting the subject a little bit, if you had to give advice to another business leader who was kind of trying to wrestle with their own organization's purpose and strategy and values, you know, what would your advice be? Where would you 
suggest they look or do or so i would start with a very firm conversation with them that says are they ready to wrestle with their own purpose and their own values first and if someone said you know i'm struggling with my organization to get my organizational values embedded it's whether as a leader you're prepared to go on that journey yourself sustaining a set of organizational values is about leadership and it's about thinking about it long term we started our values journey three years ago and are still very much on it we've got our processes now set up we have recruitment based around our values we have business cases signed off against the values so we have those processes set up but still we are working very hard to embed them in all that we do particularly as we're growing So my advice for a new leader starting this journey is this is deeply personal and people need to be ready for that themselves. You've got to be starting with what's your internal value system saying in terms of where you're at. Mm -hmm. What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that would be good for us to spend at least a, a minute or so on? I think teams is a very interesting point as as I think organizations are teams and organizations are run by collections of high performing teams that are within them. And I've been so fortunate in my career to be part of and to have led and to have built on occasion, you know, some outstanding teams of individuals. We're on that journey here to build a really strong performing organization powered by strong performing teams. I could do another whole podcast on the relationship with individuals, groups, and high performance. I just don't think it's talked enough about. We still have within business culture, this sort of lens of the hero who is an individual that is going to turn around an organization. And I think In our current business challenges we are facing within the economy, collaboration, multi-sector teamwork are becoming more and more and more a prevalent skill that's needed. Tom, I I couldn't agree more. I personally think this multi-sector collaboration, particularly around some of the big issues of climate, inclusion, economic, you know, all that, you can kind of go through the list. I do think that's got to be a key part of the way forward. So yes, I Absolutely agree with that. One thing you said about teams, which is a question certainly I see come up in a lot of organizations, just interested if you have any thoughts on it, is I find often, particularly for members of the exec team, there's this question of, so which team am I really in? Because each one of those people, they've got their own team. They've got that team, and then they're on the exec team. I'm just curious how you see that interplay working out and how you'd like to see it work out if it's not perfect. At points in my career, I've been a good team member in some teams and less good team member in other teams within an organization. And that has been down to that choice building in, in some regard. It's, it's been down to saying, I view this group as my primary team and other areas less so. So I've certainly learned from experience around that tension. I think the way into it is naming and having that discussion, recognizing that you have dual roles. And as you rise up an organization and things get more complex, it's how many teams are you in and what does that look like? I mean, I'm at the moment part of a team of regional organizations with a large decarbonization plan that we are developing. And it's been interesting, you know, this week, I've probably spent more time in that team 
than I have in my executive team here running board. So that ability to adapt and move between different structures, I think, is really important. Putting that on the table, that people are part of multiple teams, that's okay. There are going to be times that people need different things from different teams and different groups of people building that dialogue into the culture. What questions, if any, do you have for me? Of the last group of leaders you've interviewed, what would you say is the best piece of advice they could give me, having met me today? You know, Tom, I don't know if I could track it back to any one particular person or advice, but one of the things I think that leaders often kind of overlook, and I'm not saying you you are, but it, I think it's good advice, is you've got to take care of yourself first. And I don't mean financially or whatever, but just you need to make sure you're in a good place from that, then everything else flows. And again, I'm not saying that because I feel like, oh, you're not. If anything, I feel like you are. I feel like you've got a really good grasp of it. But it's often sometimes a little easy to lose track of that. Yeah, look, thank you. There's a whole piece about energy and leaders and how people stay resourced in what is a relentless pursuit of high performance, chasing the objectives of organizations and how you stay resourced within that as an individual is um, quite a topic. Again, I'm not saying this because I think you're there, but sometimes chief execs, because they're often driven, because they're often ambitious, they can sometimes almost miss that something shifted in the, you know, in the background, in the hinterland, something shifted there. And now it's not quite where it needs to be. It's one of those not bad advice, I think, for every CEO all the time. I could put it that way. Uh, Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Thank you. I just want to come back to one thing you did say to underscore it. And again, we've identified two and maybe three topics we could do a whole nother episode on. But this regional decarbonization thing, because it sounds like it's cross-sector, I just can't underscore enough how I think too much of those tough collective challenges end up being put in the, oh, the government's going to sort that out. And they have a role to play, but there's so much more to be done. If I could just say, let me applaud what you're doing there on that, in addition to everything you're doing you know, at the port. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Tom. Really appreciate you joining us. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Purposeful Strategist.